Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium podcast. This session is from the Big Screen Symposium held in Auckland on the 4th and 5th of December 2020. The opening keynote addresses are centred around the theme Transforming Culture and are delivered by five storytellers, documentary maker Leanne Pooley, games designer and producer Madhu Niho Niho, writer and activist Cole Myers, producer Emma Slade, writer and director Sebastian Lelio, online from Chile, and microbiologist Dr. Susie Wiles. Each speaker presents their ideas on the transformative power of story and the transformation the screen sector is currently experiencing from their own unique point of view and relevant to their recent work. This session is presented by Te Mangai Paho. The speakers are introduced by event MC and journalist Paula Penfold. My name is Paula Penfold. I'm an investigative journalist and it is my absolute pleasure to be your MC for this symposium. Thank you for being here. It is fantastic to see you here. Our theme this year is transforming culture. And this was a theme that was actually conceived pre-COVID, but in a way it seems even more relevant now, doesn't it, as we all reassess the way we work and the impact that COVID has had on our industry. There are six mini keynote addresses on the theme Transforming Culture from a very diverse range of viewpoints. First, we will hear from celebrated documentary director Leanne Pooley. Her latest documentary explores our future in a world of AI and the big existential challenges artificial general intelligence presents us with. She'll be here in just one moment. First, here is a taste of that most recent film. It's happening. If an alien spaceship was approaching Earth and it was 25 years away, we would be mobilized to prepare for that alien's arrival 25 years from now. But that's exactly the situation that we're in with artificial intelligence. We have no reason to believe that it will have goals that align with ours. There are people within the AI community who who wish I would shut up. The idea of weaponized AI, I think, is terrifying. If Facebook or Google wanted to start an army... It could be the end of humanity. The first person to develop strong artificial intelligence will rule the world. Will AI change our lives for the better? That is the question that brings philosophers and scientists Two blows. If a brain is able to think, it just may be possible that a computer can think. What's this? Good girl. If it's conscious, does it have rights? Or will they challenge our very existence? Once they exceed human intelligence, it doesn't even need us anymore. Maybe machines would do a better job than us. Maybe. We may just be here to give birth to the child of this machine civilization. We don't have a plan, and we don't realize it's necessary to have a plan. Hello. In the making of that film, I spent the better part of a year talking to the world's top artificial intelligence experts. Oops, is that me? The AI. Yeah, it's my earrings. 
depending on who we spoke to, the crew and I swung from feeling relatively okay to being terrified that the ultimate transformation was upon us. Because in the not too distant future, the machines were going to kill us all. One of the scariest things was the fact that almost all of the scientists we spoke to pointed to 2001 A Space Odyssey as the film that had inspired them to pursue a career in machine learning. In Kubrick's 1968 masterpiece, Hal, an intelligent computer, takes control of a spaceship and then tries to kill the entire crew. Few of the scientists saw the irony of working on a real version of Hal. They were excited by the possibilities of AI, and they were driven to pursue them regardless of the consequences. This led me to conclude that it is us, the storytellers, who must find ways to help society at large explore the really difficult existential problems we face, because we can't leave it to the scientists to charge We can't put them in charge of transforming our culture and pretty much everything else. Many of them were too deep in their own algorithms to ponder things like what it means to be human. Susie Wells is clearly an exception to that rule <laughs> coming out there. Science fiction has been considering these issues for centuries. In 1927, Fritz Lang made the film Metropolis, giving us Maria, a sexy bot that transformed an entire city into a lust-fueled frenzy. Steven Spielberg questioned whether or not machines could love. And in the movie Her, it was asked, could we love a machine? The scientists I spoke to were really quick to dismiss the Terminator franchise as overstating the, catast the catastrophic consequences of AI. But ca catastrophe can take different forms, as illustrated in the animated film WALL-E. Human enfeeblement is an issue. Ask a teenager to read a map, no GPS, and consider how far we may be from handing control of our lives to technology. Right now, the issues illustrated in countless science fiction films are finding their way into our lives. And I'd argue that we need to apply our creative energy to exploring what that means. We must imagine the unimaginable, to look deeply at how we might be transformed by AI. Some of the scientists I spoke to thought it was too soon to have this conversation because we can't grasp what the future might hold. One of them talked about what he called the horseshit problem. This was a situation where, at the turn of the last century, places like London and New York were drowning in horseshit. And they explored different, you know, the thinkers of the day were trying to work out how to solve the problem. And they, they thought about equine nappies and, and sticking corks up horses' bums, because it never occurred to them that the solution to that problem was the car. It was outside their imagination. So this scientist, who also owns a company that builds robots, felt it was too soon to have this conversation because we can't imagine what the future might be like. But I don't believe we can wait for the car. The implications of a future in which the machines are smarter than us are too important. It would be easy for us to concentrate on the specific issues that will impact on us as artists and filmmakers. Music scores written by AI is already happening. There are also algorithmic screenplays. You'll have read about that. 
there's AI editing software now, and they're building artificial actors. Not sure how well that's going. That's all terrifying, but most of it falls into the category of narrow AI, machines with very, very specific capabilities. The conversation we need to be part of to encourage, maybe even to lead, as we have done in the past, is what happens if the scientists achieve their goal? What happens if they build intelligence that can outthink, outperform, outcreate us? We as artists need to be at the table because aside from climate change, the advent of artificial intelligence might be the biggest threat we face as a species. I spent a year learning that lesson, and, it's, and I'm a little scared. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how far away AGI, artificial general intelligence, is, every scientist we spoke to believed it will happen. And when it does, the transformation to our culture and everything we know will be irreversible. As filmmakers, we are in a unique position. We are given the tools to create worlds. In doing this, we can make work that encourages a conversation about what we want the future to look like before the transformation happens without us. Thanks. Thank you so much, Leanne. Our next speaker this morning is games designer and producer Maru Nihuniho. Maru focuses her work on indigenous storytelling in games as an outlet for engagement and learning. Please welcome Maru Nihuniho. Ko kiriki te maunga, ko wairuru te awa, ko te whanawa maru hairumuri te hapu, ko te whanawa apanui te iwi, ko maru hairumuri nihuniho ahau. Kia ora koutou. These images you see behind me are from a game I'm developing called Guardian Maya. But before I go on into what this game is, I'm going to tell you about my transformational journey into the games industry itself. I thought about this, how do I squeeze 16 years into five minutes? So how did I go from playing Spaces as a teenager to making games for PlayStation? Well, first of all, I really enjoyed the game, the game mechanics and the gameplay. It was so interesting to me to be wrapped up in a story that I could control. So I left school. I spent 14 years in hospitality. I started a family. I had a good business. But in all those years, I still played games. I went from Spaces to Sega to PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Xbox, the whole lot. I was there. It was my thing. But there was something that was bugging me, something that I really, really wanted to do. And that was to go from playing games to making games. 16 years ago, a long time now, I took that first step. I started my company, Meteor Interactive. My motivation was to make fun games. My inspiration was Te Ao Māori. And my focus is educating 
through storytelling. Eight years ago, I designed a game called Sparks. Sparks is based on cognitive behavioural therapy, and it was intended to help our rangatahi understand depression. So it was a tool that we computerised as a game to give our young people tools to understand how they could help themselves. It was the first game of its type to go through clinical trials. And it came out with successful results showing that the Sparks game was just as effective as treatment as usual. This was the moment when I realised the potential of games as educational tools. Games are interactive, they're immersive, and they put the player in control. You control, as a gamer, what happens in the game world. Combine that with key learning objectives, and you have stories that become relevant, impactful, and transformational. This brings me back to Guardian Maya. This story is a hybrid science fiction story that like, talks about and draws on the mythology of Te Ao Māori. The story follows the journey of a manawahine named Maya through a dystopian Aotearoa. Maya is a kaitiaki. She is not afraid to stand for what's right. So this story combines years of experience in working on games in general as a designer, looking at the industry as a whole. Where did it come from? Where is it going? All that combined together has helped me inform the design of this game. Most of all, this story is my take on Indigenous futurisms and tikanga Māori. This is also an opportunity to encompass all my experience in my life, what matters to me, what's relevant to me, and to our communities and to our country. It's a way to incorporate real relevance and meaning into today's issues as well. So how do you incorporate important values like mana, especially in an interactive environment? Mana is not just about power, it's about how people perceive you. It's about what you do and who you are. And most of all, it's about prestige. So in our game design system, the strength of a character's mana depends upon the choices and consequences of the player. Because don't forget, you are in control. It's your choice to make choices and then face the consequences of those choices within the gaming world. What role will players take in terms of kaitiakitanga, or guardianship? Can we teach empathy? Can we teach understanding? Can we teach the interconnectedness and relationships of all living and non-living things? I believe we can. What makes me confident? I've worked on a few games over the years, Māori games, 
Māori games that have been told with an authentic local voice. I hear the stories of many iwi and I translate them into a digital platform. So for us, there's a great opportunity to tell our stories, our way, with an authentic voice. This is a way of transforming the culture of games at its core. Finally, I'd like to thank those of you that are here that have supported me through my journey. To work on games is really tough. To work on storytelling, as you know, is tough. But to work on storytelling in an interactive environment, wow, what a challenge. So thank you. Thank you to those that are here. New Zealand Film Commission, Ngamahi, Kia ora koutou katoa. and the amazing work that you are doing. And now we will hear from writer and activist Cole Myers. He is series writer and co-producer of Rurangi, New Zealand's first transgender drama series, and works as a consultant on trans and gender diverse narratives and inclusion in film, television, web series, and theatre. Please put your hands together for Cole Myers. Very bright up here. I'm really nervous. Um, I thought I'd say that straight off because it's always better. Um, makes it a bit easier. I was joking with someone yesterday that um, all architects who design theatres should probably have to do some public speaking first. Um, because then they wouldn't have put like three doors, two floors and a key code between the stage and the bathroom. Um, <laughs> like stress peeing, it's a thing. Um, sorry, I haven't interviewed any robots um, and I don't have any slides. Um, I was thinking about just putting a slide up there that was like, you know, how to draw a cartoon lobster or something, just so I could say I had a slide. Um, and I probably could make something up about how, you know, lobsters have got hard shells and they shed their shells and they become really soft and vulnerable and change, transform stuff. I didn't really think they're far ahead. Um, transforming culture. Um, it's kind of made for me, you know, transforming culture. Fantastically designed for me. Um, I don't actually know a lot about the screen industry. Um, and that's not just me saying that as in like, you know, oh, you know, I've got 50 years experience and 17 Oscars, but you know, I don't know anything about the screen industry. Um, straight up, I don't. Um, but actually, what I found is it's kind of sometimes easier to change things when you're not really sure how they're supposed to be in the first place. <laughs> um, so I don't know a huge amount about the screen industry, but I know quite a lot about me. Um, I'm queer, surprise, um, and trans. I'm also neurodiverse and disabled case you couldn't see the style accessories. Um, and particularly the last one, you know, disabled has just been an identity that's only recently felt like I've 
been able to claim. Um, almost longer than how long it's taken me to claim the identity of writer, um, which, you know, has been a long journey as well. And I think the thing that both of those have in common is that we've got this idea that they're things that people have to bestow upon us, that we can't actually claim them for ourselves. I also have a lot of chronic health problems. Um, the main two um, are Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a genetic connective tissue disorder that causes severe widespread uh, pain and a variety of, a humorous variety almost, of, of dysfunction, um, and anorexia. Um, with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, it took me an incredibly long time to get a diagnosis. Um, and because it's quite rare and I hadn't seen anyone that was having these kind of things, it was really easy to invalidate my experiences and assume that I was not having any experiences I was having because I wasn't seeing anyone else that was. Um, as far as eating disorders go, trans people are actually four to five times more likely than any other group to have eating disorders. Um, and I think a huge part of that comes down to the fact that we're not seeing other trans bodies out there. We're only seeing cis bodies. Um, and so when you're comparing yourself to that, it's, it's very easy for gender dysphoria and, and eating disorders to get very mixed up and complicated. So the thing that these three things have in common um, are this idea about not seeing yourself, not seeing representations. Um, and if I do know something about the screen industry, it's quite an industry of mirrors. You know, we, we make mirrors and we are mirrors. Um, but, you know, who, who is being reflected? And I say these things about, you know, my own health things, not to be TMI or anything, <laughs> um, but because I know how much it would mean to me if I was in the audience and I heard someone that was up on stage say that they were dealing with the same things I was dealing with and know that at least one other person in that whole room was not judging me for something that I was dealing with. But this kind of authenticity and realness, you know, requires a huge amount of vulnerability. Um, and pain is an incredibly isolating thing. Um, but the sharing of pain is an incredibly connecting thing. And through that sharing and connecting, you know, a huge amount of compassion comes from that. Um, but the giving of kindness and the receiving of kindness is, it requires vulnerability as well. Um, another thing that, you know, very much requires vulnerability is creativity itself. You know, in order to experiment with new ideas and to put those ideas out there and to work with other people on these on art, you know, requires putting ourselves out there, requires vulnerability. Um, and so when I was thinking about the screen industry and I really kind of came into it from an activist perspective that was sort of like, how can I do what I love and 
make the changes that I'm bloody well going to make, goddammit, <laughs> um, was, you know, that I, I wanted to make quality, authentic art in a compassionate way. Um, but in order to do that, you know, I had to think a lot about accessibility um, because I needed to think about how can I make this art? I, you know, as a disabled trans person and also how, you know, involving other trans people and, and most likely other disabled trans people. Um, and so, you know, there are people that can probably talk a lot better than me about the disability relation to accessibility. But something I've been thinking a lot about lately has been about the concept of gender accessibility um, and the idea about in order to make mirrors and exist in spaces, you need to be able to access them and things like whether there are bathrooms that you can use, whether there are forms that validate your identity, um, whether things like, and I will do some examples in a minute actually now that I see that's written down there. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> sweaty hands and non-waterproof ink aren't really the, <laughs> the best bedfellows. Um, my recent film is Rurangi, um, which is a story about a trans man who goes home to his small rural hometown after 10 years of being away and, and re-meets his father and friends that haven't seen him since before he transitioned. Um, and on that film, we involved a huge amount of trans people and gender diverse people. Um, and so the concept of gender accessibility was one that we had to think hugely about. Um, so here are some examples of all the sorts of um, things that were involved in that. Um, of course, there was the, you know, the obvious issue of all gender bathrooms and all places that we were working, um, all forms um, and processes and things like that included open gender box. Um, pronouns and pronoun tags, but also thinking about it in the screen and filming um, relations is actually often you can't read someone's tag from across the room. Um, and so we came up with the concept of coloured pronoun bands so that you could say, can you ask him next to you? Because you could see of the colour of the band. Um, all the casting was of gender diverse characters were of gender diverse people. Um, all the costuming and makeup was done in a very uh, collaborative, consultative way um, with the actors themselves um, so that it wasn't a case of put this on, you know, do that. Um, it was, you know, what parts of your body do you like and not like? You know, what clothing works for you? How do you feel about this? Um, so that we weren't, you know, putting people in uncomfortable or potentially unsafe situations. Um, changing and fitting rooms were had like privacy available. Um, intimacy consultants, um, consent around not just intimacy scenes but all kind of contact in general. Um, so much of acting, you know, as in doing acting myself as well, is just involves you know you do that to that person and that's fine, even if it's just a touch on the shoulder. But actually taking into consideration that. You know, trans people and bodies and and trauma and 
and those sorts of things, you know, it has to be more of a collaborative rather than a hierarchical um, situation. PR, marketing, social things, all um, consultative as far as making sure that we weren't putting messages out there that were doing harm. Um, very much a lot of discussions around power dynamics and breaking down traditional power hierarchies and anonymous feedback spaces so that, you know, people weren't being asked to bring up issues in spaces where it just wasn't safe for them to do so. Um, compulsory training, um, a very highly qualified consultant <laughs> group of trans people who had veto power at multiple stages through the production. Um, we had a number of creative paid interns that were gender diverse people that worked sort of more in a collaborative um, situation rather than a, a particularly mentor-mentee. It was taking into consideration the fact that the trans people were actually experts in their own rights, um, on their own experiences, and that they had things to teach the HODs as well. Um, that's as much as I can read right now. Yep. Oh, the last one there that I've got in um, is about a kindness officer, which is the kind of, oh, I'm not quite set on the name of it, um, but a holistic welfare officer um, that, you know, was also, it was me, um, just saying. <laughs> but an important part about that was it wasn't just a holistic welfare officer, it was someone who had power. And as a co-producer, you know, it wasn't just that I could check in with people and, and you know, offer, offer support, but it was that if shit needed to get done, then I was like, shit's going to go get done. Um, and an interesting thing, which, you know, is interesting, but probably shouldn't have been particularly surprising, was that all of these things weren't just great for trans people, because we decided that we didn't want to make it in a singling trans people out and go, you go over there in the special check-in group where we do something, um, and made it for everyone. And interestingly, it wasn't actually the trans people who so much needed to use my services as a support, a support officer, but the vast, vast majority of the people that I dealt with issues with and heard rants from and sorted out situations with were cis people. Um, and everyone incredibly appreciated things like being asked for their input in costuming and bodies and consent. Um, and this whole idea about chickens and aroha being incredibly centred um, in all things that were being done was something that worked incredibly well with all of our cast and really fostered that compassionate environment that we were really wanting to see. Um, and because, you know, people were feeling good, they felt much more capable of making themselves vulnerable. Um, and so it just came naturally that the, you know, good art that we wanted to make was made because people were passionate and people were supported in, in making 
really good stuff. And it's really interesting after a, a life of chronic self-doubt and shame um, to be able to say that this is the thing that I am most proud of in my life. Because I don't know a lot about the screen industry. But when I started out on this journey, the thing that I kept hearing over and over was that I could choose to make authentic, compassionate art or good art or quality art, you know, that it wasn't, that I couldn't have all those things. But I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to have all those things, <laughs> um, which definitely helped. Um, so I don't know a lot about the screen industry, but I know a lot about me, and I know a lot about what I want to see and the mirrors that I want to put out there. Um, and so... Two other queer, trans, neurodiverse, disabled people, two other artists and activists and people who really like lobsters are wearing lobster stocks right now, have chronic illness or chronic injury, have eating disorders, people who still often count getting out of bed, or having a shower, or eating one full meal in a day as a major success. Other people who felt like they didn't exist, or they shouldn't exist because they weren't seeing themselves. You know, other people who are having feelings in public right now. <laughs> yeah, making mirrors, that's... That's what I wanted to do, and that's, that's something that I know about the screen industry. Wow, there was nothing TMI about that at all, was there? Thank you, Cole, for your candor. I know that there uh, will be much appreciation for your messages. Thank you so much. Our next speaker this morning is Emma Slade. Emma is co-founder of Screen Women's Action Group and producer of feature films including Come to Daddy and The Changeover, as well as upcoming films Nude Tuesday and The Justice of Bunny King. Please welcome Emma Slade. Thank you to the Big Screen Symposium for offering me the opportunity to share with you my ruminations on transforming culture. There is a degree of nervousness about speaking today. What authority do I have to speak about culture change? Well, no authority at all, actually. But I saw this as an opportunity to begin or continue a discussion with my fellow colleagues by sharing my thoughts on how to transform something as intangible as culture. With mistakes made and successes gained, one thing I know for sure at the heart of this mahi is teamwork. Doing anything is hard, but changing something is impossible without a team. As so eloquently said in Māori, e aha te anui o te o, e tangata, e tangata, e tangata. What is the most important thing in the world 
It is people, it is people, it is people. This following clip is one I found a few years back. It stuck with me and I think it best sums up about how important humans are. All types, sizes, colours and creeds that have skill sets, personalities, strengths and weaknesses that come like jigsaw pieces to lock together and create magic. Not dissimilar to making a film or TV series really, but it is these jigsaw pieces that are critical to transforming culture. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. This analogy is aligned to how the Screen Woman's Action Group, otherwise known as SWAG, began in Aotearoa. In 2018, when the Weinstein story broke out and the Me Too movement gained significant momentum, Gaison Tavat had the guts to ask on social media if people thought there was an issue with sexual harassment in New Zealand's screen industry. The resounding response was a cohesive yes. Knowing that this was a systemic issue and therefore needed deep, meaningful change, Paula Bock and myself joined Gaison as first followers. Gaison was the flint and we were the spark. The second followers, Robin Patterson, Katie Wolfe, Kerry Walker, and Catherine Fitzgerald, gave further momentum to our objective to change the culture around sexual harassment in our industry, and SWAG members Aroha Wharton, Tania Hickey, Roxy Ball, and Kelly Lucas solidified this. SWAG was born. We had liftoff. Having no idea about how to change people's thinking around such a topic, we engaged with experts who knew more about this than us. Catherine Delahunty, an XMP, and Rachel Harrison, sexual violence prevention trainer, who gave us clarity on the outcomes we were striving for and how to achieve them. The most important thing was messaging, choosing a singular issue and keeping it simple. This was tricky, as there were many things we wanted to address, but Catherine advised, stick to sexual harassment only, and once we have success with that, we will have the momentum and infrastructure to create change with other issues too. The next step was research, learning from others. 
We needed to know our topic inside and out. What was happening around the rest of the world? Who had gone before us and what had they achieved? How could we get sufficient data from our sector so we could get funders and government officials to support our cause? Practitioners came from all corners of New Zealand to participate in the discussion. We brought all of the intel together, distilled it into clear tasks, and our pathway was set. It was time to go public. We worked hard at bringing funding to the table. We communicated with our followers, and we connected with men in particular who would champion with us and work in the work we wanted to achieve. This was a significant factor in creating the cultural shift. Rachel Harrison had advocated for this, as it had been an effective way in her training with organisations such as New Zealand Defence Force and New Zealand Rugby. Strategic partnerships were formed and SWAG joined forces with ScreenSafe. We wanted there to be as much emphasis on mental and psychological well-being as there was on physical well-being. A shout out to Kelly Lucas, who passionately helped drive this ambition in both ScreenSafe and SWAG. With the support of the New Zealand Government, New Zealand On Air, New Zealand Film Commission and Te Mangapahu, SWAG has rolled out multiple one-day professional respect workshops up and down the country over the past year at no cost to participants. The positive response we have had from attendees has been overwhelming and extremely gratifying. The balance is shifting, the change is happening, and as the video says, as more people jump in, it is no longer risky. They won't stand out or be ridiculed. The balance tips, and soon there'll be a sense of being ridiculed if you don't join the crowd. This is culture change. As a founding member of the Screen Women's Action Group, I would often be overwhelmed by the size of the mountain we needed to overcome, but with the support we gave one another, the cheers from our followers, the burn from our cynics, it was all fuel to our movement. Personally, I love blue sky thinking, and I think everyone should be encouraged to do it. Finding the time is the hardest part. As a parent, partner, friend, producer, and business owner, carving out space in your day to dream or think big is super challenging. But thinking about how we can leave the industry in a better place than when we started, and then drilling down into how to turn those big ideas into the practicalities of when, where, what, and who, is critical to the evolution of our industry. As Sir Ed would say, people do not decide to become extraordinary. They decide to accomplish extraordinary things. Namahi nui. I hope you enjoy the conference. Thank you so much, Emma Slade. What an amazing bunch of speakers we have this morning, don't we? And our next one will be no exception. It's somebody you may have seen on the news from time to time this year, award-winning scientist Dr. Susie Wiles. Susie is Associate Professor at the University of Auckland, and in 2019, she was appointed a member of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Microbiology and Science Communication, and it is not hard to see why. Please welcome Dr. Susie Wiles. Thank you. Uh, kia ora. So it's a bit strange being here. Uh, you're not my usual audience. 
Um, but I would like to thank the organisers for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, and I was going to, uh, I was going to do a gushing, um, you're all amazing, um, you know, we've, uh, I guess this whole pandemic has shown us, you know, that we need not just scientists, but obviously when we're locked at home, we need our filmmakers and we need all of our, you know, our artists and everything. So um, just put it as goes without saying that that stuff, awesome, thank you very much. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to spend my remaining six minutes um, telling you something different. So uh, you've heard I'm an associate professor at the University of Auckland. Um, you might have seen me. I feel like I've become, or people tell me I'm like the COVID lady. Uh, so, you know, I've spent this year talking a lot about, <laughs> about pandemics and, and nasty viruses. Um, and there's two reasons that, that I've become the COVID lady. So one of those is that I've spent the last 27 years studying infectious diseases. Uh, started with an undergraduate degree, then did a PhD, and then have worked in universities ever since. So I'm a university lecturer, uh, and I also run a research lab that does research on infectious diseases. Admittedly, I'm not a virologist. I'm a bacteriologist. Um, but I like to say that's because bacteria are more complicated than viruses, so <laughs> viruses are easy. Um, so there's sort of one, one reason. So, um, you know, we don't like to blow our own, own trumpets, um, but I am an expert in infectious diseases. I've spent an awful long time uh, learning about them, which is not to say that there's still stuff that I don't know or that we don't know in general about infectious diseases. Um, but the other reason that I, is that I, I think communication of science is really, really important, and I've spent 10 years learning how to communicate better with different audiences. And that's included working with uh, cartoonists, with... Um, so. The, the very obvious one <laughs> during COVID has been Toby Morris, who's been an amazing uh, way of communicating the science ideas out there to a general public, um, but also other animators and, and all sorts of people, so learning how to communicate science. So that's kind of why when the pandemic arrived, when my phone started ringing back in early January saying, what is this virus thing that people are hearing about in China, uh, my first response was, how can I help you answer those questions? Okay. So that's kind of how I ended up here. But what's happened in the past year has meant that I now have an inbox that is filled and filled daily with all sorts of wonderful emails and messages um, telling me that I can't possibly be an expert. So they things like I'm too fat, I'm too young, I'm too pink, I don't look right, I look like a clown, I look like a joke, I'm out of my depth. And so the question is, and, and I will also put out there that I know that it's not everybody, that actually it's kind of minority, there are lots of people now that are stopping me in the street going, oh, we love you, Susie, and we think science is great. So I, I get that, that's awesome, thank you very much. Um, but I want to address the, these, the why I get these emails. Why do people have these ideas that, as somebody with pink hair, I cannot be either an expert uh, in anything, uh, but especially in infectious diseases? And it's because I'm not what an expert looks like, and I'm not what a scientist looks like, right? So they've, you know, people <laughs> since, since they're born, frankly, have had, you know, drilled into them by society what expertise is. Uh, and what scientists are, and they don't look like me, you know, and I get this even within my own, with, even within science, my colleagues are just like, oh, you don't look like some of us, it's a bit weird. Um, and so why is that, right? So 
because we, our stories aren't told, because we have, you know, we're kind of confronted with a stereotype of what expertise and what scientists look like and are. And then that kind of perpetuates the problem because people don't see themselves and so they don't follow those kinds of careers. So this is your job as our storytellers. So I want to say, you know, tell our stories. And I have to say a huge thank you to um, Gwen Isaac and the Loading Docs team for telling my story, <laughs> which has been a little uncomfortable. Um, but, uh, but even if you're not going to tell our stories, our individual stories, really think about your characters. Don't make scientists caricatures of who you think we are. Um, with that caveat, I will say Leanne is right. You know, there, there are obviously some scientists who um, look a certain way and act a certain way, but not all of us. You know, some of us can make eye contact. We are really good at talking. <laughs> you know, we, we have these other skills. Some of us even have pink hair and love playing with Lego. So, you know, please reconsider your characters. If you're going to tell stories about scientists, make us rounded human beings that are not the caricature that everyone thinks we are. Because this is really, really important, right? We are in an absolute crisis. You know, it's not just the AI that's going to get us. We've got climate change. We've got the death of expertise, right? When people, when people can email me saying, I've Googled and I've watched a video and I know more than you and then you're 27 years of actual research on something, that's a real worry, right? So please, please help us show who experts are and can be, you know, amplify our stories because we really do need... <laughs> to really understand that experts actually might know what they're talking about. Um, and we might need that expertise to get through the challenges that we face. Thank you very much. Brilliant, brilliant. Aren't we lucky to have her? Thank you so much, Dr. Susie Wiles. For our final mini keynote, we are so pleased to have Academy Award-winning writer-director Sebastian Lelio joining us live from Santiago in Chile. His films Gloria, A Fantastic Woman, Disobedience and Gloria Bell have all achieved high acclaim with A Fantastic Woman winning the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film in 2017, among many other awards. Please welcome Sebastian Lelio. Hello, everyone. Um, in 2014, my, my co-writer and I were playing with the idea of what would happen if the person you love dies in your arms. Uh, but that somehow becomes uh, challenging for the other characters because no one knew anything about your, your existence. And we were, you know, playing with different characters and suddenly, this was back in 2014, the idea of um, a transgender woman protagonizing this narrative appeared. And um, it felt, uh, I felt like we, ne we needed to stop writing right away. And I was living in Berlin back then and, and I, I, I wanted to immediately go to Santiago in Chile to meet a transgender woman uh, and see who was out there and allow and see if it was possible to allow that to guide us. Um, the, this expressive territory felt um, dangerous, aesthetically, politically, uh, in terms of representation, and I thought that was a good sign. Um, so we were suddenly preparing this film, relatively big for Chilean standards, 
um, knowing, uh, very aware of how conservative in terms of values the political power is in Chile. And I make the dis distinction because Chilean people are willing to modernize society. Proof of this is um, that a few weeks ago, um, there was a plebiscite, so people could decide if we were going to get rid of Pinochet, wildly neoliberal constitution, illegitimous, uh, by the way, and the option yes, um, had a, an immense win, 80% versus 20. Um, and that to me reflects the real country we live in. Um, so back into how the, the film um, came into shape, um, I remember seeing the first magazine covers with, with Trump, trans people on them while we were, we were about to start shooting uh, in 2016, more or less. So the, press, the global media presence, uh, trans presence was um, growing. Um, so the problem of how to represent this subject became more and more central. I knew intuitively that I wasn't going to make the film without a transgender woman interpreting the main character. And this wasn't because I was concerned with the notion of cultural appropriation that to me were still a bit blurry back then, I must confess, but because it felt aesthetically right and morally complex. That's where the role of trans actress and now dear, dear friend Daniela Vega became so important. Daniela had transitioned when she was 15. She was around 28 when we shot and she became our way into the story and later on our main actress. At, at first she was a consultant. Um, so she would let us know about what transitioning had meant for her in Chile um, how microaggressions work for her and about her subjective experience. Even if she never knew what the story was really about, um, while the time when she was our consultant, somehow she inundated um, with her experience and personality um, the main character and the story. Um, so we shot the film, a trans, as I'd like to, I like to explain it, a trans genre film about a transgender character with Daniela at its center, at its heart. And we were full of enthusiasm and of course, fears. Um, we edited the film in, by, by mid to southern and 16. Um, it was particularly difficult to get the right tone in a story that was combining elements from different genres, melodrama, noir, fantasy, a, a woman's film, a ghost story. So in February of 2017, we were in our way to release the film in uh, Berlin Film Festival main competition. And I remember a few days before that, um, seeing this National Geographic special edition, the shifting landscape of sexual identity. Um, and I was like, wow, like we, what we were um, like imagining, it's, it, it, there is a, a connection with what's happening in terms of uh, public communications and presence. Um, and that was, of course, um, exciting, scary, confusing. I, I made the, the mistake of reading the commentaries on Instagram from National Geographic, and there were literally more than a thousand, and 50% of them were um, full of hate. And, um, and the other half full of, uh, they, 
inspiration and there was something very, um, they recognized that there was something powerful and beautiful um, about um, acknowledging trans, trans people. Um, at Berlinale, Daniela, the main, the main actress, became somehow the center of attention and the film won a lot of notoriety and support, um, got a silver bird for script. Um, all these elements became interesting or even tasty for Chilean press. So the conversation here about values and trans identity became progressively intense in Chile. The urge to reactivate uh, the project to create a law created to recognize trans people rights was reactivated. A law that was dormant in Congress after five years. Uh, conservative politicians would say that they would never support a law that legitimizes trans people here, that God created men and women, etc. I would never say that this public discussion was triggered exclusively by the film's notoriety. And of course, all conquest of social rights is always the result of a collective struggle. But somehow the film produced a spark that helped reignite the process. So the film went around the world winning support and attention. And by the, by, um, by the time it was released in Chile, the collective awareness of trans existence had shifted. Um, in early 2017, uh, the country was governed by center-left President Michelle Bachelet, and it was her last year in power. In November, Chile selected the film to represent the country at the Oscars. In January, it was nominated, and in March, it won the first Oscar for a feature film in the history of the country. Only a week before the ending of um, President Bachelet's government, uh, the incoming government was um, very right-wing, and against these ideas. So we flew back right away and went to the government palace to present the Oscar to President Bachelet right on time. A couple of days before she left office, we found out through the press that uh, she had used her faculties to oblige Congress to finally discuss this transgender identity law. A few months after that, in the first year of the new very conservative government, the first gender identity law was approved by Chilean Congress insufficient, imperfect, imperfect, but a big step toward the recognition of legitimacy, uh, legitimacy of trans people in Chile. And in general of the idea that there is, there is not such thing as illegitimate people. I think that films can change the way in which, in which we look at things and therefore the things we look at can start to change. This is particularly inspiring now when Chile is going through a process of transformation aiming to have a new constitution, uh, one that is coherent with the level of consciousness of that striking majority that voted yes to, to the new constitution a few, a few weeks ago. It will be the first paritarian constitution of the world, and there are many of us um, who are pushing for it to be feminist, ecological, and pluricultural. Thank you. The Big Screen Symposium 2020 was brought to you by Script to Screen and J&A Productions. We gratefully thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Te Mangai Paho, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and AUT. Voiceover is by me, La Lena Faunati, and music by Poddington Bear. 